Hello and welcome to Warwick Podcasts. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Rowan Williams, has stirred up controversy with his comments on Sharia working alongside the UK's legal system. Professor of Law at the University of Warwick, Shaheen Ali, a specialist in Islamic law, talks to Tom Abbott about Dr. Williams' comments, the nature of Sharia and the Islamic legal tradition, and how this impacts the UK legal framework. There's been an awful lot of debate and discussion, some of it quite polarised, around uh, Dr. Rowan Williams' recent comments about the adoption of Islamic law uh, within the context of the UK legal framework. Um, it's probably worth starting with just trying to get an understanding of what do we mean by Islamic law? Mm-hmm. Is Islamic law, Sharia law, what is the legal framework within Islam that we're dealing with here? We need to place Dr. Williams' um, um, statements into into the wider context of um, the Islamic legal tradition. Now, you'll notice that I consciously uh, do not use the word Islamic law because in a Western uh, legal tradition, a law is the black letter law, whereas the Islamic legal tradition is more than that. Now, Sharia and Islamic law are not identical concepts or notions. Sharia, um, if you want to imagine it as an umbrella, it's that overarching umbrella under which legal systems, moral systems, economic, social, political, cultural, financial, all these systems operate. So the Sharia actually is, um, uh, by definition, um, a code of life, but it is n- all of it is not legally enforceable rules and principles. So that's the, the first distinction um, that we, uh, we need to make. The Islamic legal tradition or um, Islamic law, if you want to, if you want to call it that, um, seeks inspiration from the sources of, uh, um, of the Islamic legal tradition. So the Quran, the Hadith, Ijma, um, Qiyas, Ijtihad and so on. And these are not a monolithic set of rules and principles because they are inspired and they're informed by a multiplicity of thinking and norms. Um, And we have at least um, seven juristic schools of thought in Islam. So you've got Sunnis and Shias um, as sects, two major sects in Islam. But among the Sunnis, you've got at least four major subsects, the Hanafi, Shafi'i, Maliki and Hanbali. On the Shia side, uh, uh, you have the Asna Sharias, you have the Zaidiyas, and you have the Ismailias. Now, the jurisprudence from these two uh, uh, sects and subsects um, do not really agree on the minute details of what you and I might describe as Islamic law. Now, that's, that's a very important distinction to make because then that leads you down the path of if we're anticipating the application of an Islamic legal tradition in a non-Muslim jurisdiction such as the United Kingdom, what do we actually mean and what informs our discourse? Now, 57 uh, Muslim jurisdictions in the world do not have identical legal systems at all. 
primarily because it depends on what their majority population is. So whilst uh, Iran will follow the Fiqh Jafriya or the Shia school of thought, Pakistan uh, is predominantly following the Hanfi Sunni tradition. You have Malaysia and Indonesia following the Shafi'i and Maliki uh, schools of thought. You have the Hanbali or the Wahhabi uh, movement in, uh, up in, uh, in Saudi Arabia. So bring all of that into the United Kingdom and of the 10% plus Muslim population in this country, you have people belonging to at least these seven denominations. And so to translate that into a legal policy uh, is in itself problematic. Second point I would like to make is that Islamic international law, or seer as we call it, is a very well-developed system which addresses and speaks to the rights and obligations of Muslims living in non-Muslim jurisdictions. So there is already a code of conduct and a, a, a policy, a Muslim policy if you will, um, of how Muslims who have made the United Kingdom or America or Canada or, 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 or Europe their home, what are their obligations vis-a-vis -vis the legal system of that country. Now, if we look at the United Kingdom, it's very clear that most of the laws in this country subscribe to the Islamic legal tradition. Yeah? Because for me, the underlying principle or the question that I will ask myself before I adopt a certain law in the United Kingdom is, does this lead to social justice? And if it does lead to social justice, Islam stands for social justice. Now, that's the kind of question. I mean, we're almost sort of turning Dr. Williams' uh, ideas on, uh, on their head, as it were. But for me, the starting point, the departure point, is not so much whether we should have a legal system as opposed to another legal system. My starting point would be, does Britain afford a legal system to all its inhabitants irrespective of religion, class, color, ethnicity, that is based on and that produces social justice. Now, that's, I think, where we might bring in uh, ideas and thinking uh, and normative principles from various religions. And I do not believe that there's a single religion on this earth that actually talks about social injustice. I'm seeking convergence of norms and ideas rather than divergence. Is it cultural distinctions then that complicate the debate and understanding of what is what we mean by Islamic law, or I suppose you could almost say Catholic law or Jewish law? Is it those cultural distinctions that create the confusion um, and the misunderstanding about what these frameworks actually are? Yeah, I mean, definitely so. And I feel that the other sort of misconception that we have to clarify is what stems from religion and what stems from culture. And in the context of the United Kingdom, a lot of the, uh, the, the ideas and the ideology and the principles and norms that get passed on um, as quote-unquote Muslim or Islamic are actually cultural. Yeah? So, for example, uh, not encouraging female education, not encouraging women's access to health facilities, not encouraging women uh, to go out and seek employment is not Islamic. In fact, if I may say so, it is anti-Islamic. And yet, 
these are the norms that seem to um, hit the media and people seem to think that is Islam. Now, a religious tradition whose first word, first word of revelation to the Prophet Muhammad was Iqra, which means knowledge, seek to read. And it is, in, it is an injunction, a moral legal injunction on every Muslim, man or woman, old or young, to actually seek knowledge. But if you, look at, if you look at the indicators and statistics of Muslim communities in Britain, you see that their health and education performance levels are actually one of the lowest in the country. To ascribe that to religion is obviously complete nonsense because it is more cultural, it is more perhaps social, social marginalization. And so I would again turn all of this debate on its head and say, rather than engaging in, in issues of shall I cover my head or not, shall I cover it um, with, a, with a piece of cloth that's two yards long or one yard long, I feel that the important issue is social justice. So addressing the health, education, employment needs of the Muslim community, for me that is the central debate rather than saying which set of laws should actually be applicable because I, I honestly feel that a lot of members of the Muslim community do not engage with the, with, the, with the state and the establishment and the legal system, not because of any religious needs, but because of their lack of skills of engagement. So what do you think Dr. Williams was trying to achieve then by these statements? Because he's either guilty of gross oversimplification or has wandered into a subject knowing the depth but hasn't explained himself very well. I uh, Honestly, I, I do not think that what he's saying um, comes from any uh, any malafide intention. Let me let me make that very clear. I you know I would doubt very much that that he's he's got anything um, uh, but good at heart. So I mean his heart's definitely in the right place. I feel that there is and and he does also realize what he's actually saying is let's put some of these issues on the table they're hugely sensitive issues and because of this mix-up of culture religion tradition let's try and unpick them one at a time and so if you noticed he's identified three major areas he's talking of family disputes he's talking of finance and he's talking of business he's, he's identified particularly these three major issues where he feels um, that some recognition and debate uh, um, uh, regarding uh, the Islamic legal tradition ought to come in, in the fore. Now, the first point that I'd like to make, and I'd like to quote uh, the Archbishop where he says that he argue, he says that Muslims find themselves, quote, faced with the stark alternatives of cultural loyalty or state loyalty, unquote. Now, here uh, uh, is, is the problem, I feel, in the perception uh, that the Archbishop is presenting. Religion is very different to culture. And if he's saying that, that uh, uh, British Muslims are caught between alternatives of culture and state loyalty, surely um, a lot of other people from other religious traditions uh, and cultural traditions are also caught between uh, uh, state loyalty and cultural loyalty. But I don't... I take issue with the statement because I do not feel that state loyalty and cultural loyalty ought to be at loggerheads with each other. Because as a Muslim, I'm very clear that Islam teaches me to be loyal and to respect the laws of the country which I have made my home. So long as those laws do not prevent me from my five 
main pillars of Islam. So, you know, the fact that of Tawheed, the fact that I, I claim to be a Muslim, the fact that I can say my prayers five times a day, the fact that I can fast in the month of Ramadan, the fact that I can give to charity, and finally the fact that I can go to pilgrimage. Now, for me, I do not find it difficult at all uh, to uh, engage in that in, in Britain. And so having fulfilled and ticked those five boxes in England, then the obligation on me is as a good Muslim that I do obey the laws of Britain. Now, if we come to um, the three issues that uh, the Archbishop raised, the first he said, I mean, I'll take them in reverse order. He talks of business and finance. Now, business and finance, um, I know that not only Britain, uh, but the US and mainland Europe have for a long time engaged um, in the form of international contact contracts and banking and rules of finance. They have engaged in what are called halal products. So in banking, whether it's mortgage, whether it's uh, lending money in uh, for, for other contracts, etc., they have been very open. And the city firms in London, knowing exactly where their mouth is, you know, they, they just put they have really engaged in a lot of discussion and debate. And I don't see that as a, a problem because commerce and finance and, and in economic interests, uh, I think, does teach people to correlate to each other. So I feel that that really was, is a non-issue because I feel that, you know, it's already happening. And the British courts and the British financial institutions are more than happy, uh, you know, looking at all these Arab investments that are coming into Britain and, and, and doing us good. I don't think that there's been a problem there. It's just probably the way he expressed it. He ought to have said, you know, we are doing this and, and it's not an issue. I feel that where there is perhaps an, an issue is the way, um, the, the way the Muslim community interacts with establishment institutions in Britain and vice versa. And there, I think, is a real need for an open debate. And what I'm going to say might appear controversial, and I, I really don't mind that because I feel that somebody's got to make these, these statements. Now, the first point in the f in family uh, dispute is this debate of does Islam permit forced marriages? Now, the answer is a big, big no with a capital letter and bold and, and underlined. Yeah. Now, that is something which both the Muslim community as well as uh, 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 establishment institutions in government need to stand up and, and say very clearly, look here, folks, when we're talking of forced marriages, let us delete the word Muslim in there because it's got nothing to do with Islam. Yeah. So I suspect when the Archbishop was talking about it, one thing that goes out the window very clearly is that if we were talking about Sharia principles, there is no place in Sharia for forced marriage. Yeah. Secondly, I feel that the problem, as I said earlier, is a lack of engagement of the Muslim community with institutional requirements of marriage and divorce and custody in Britain. Now, there's a very simple solution to that. We know that all uh, uh, well, churches, for instance, and other institutions do have a license to conduct a marriage ceremony. So you have uh, your secular stroke religious ceremony in one, and that takes care of the rights and obligations of both parties. Now, for Muslims, 
it would hugely help if mosques in this country and the imams who lead the prayer in those mosques are they do become licensed uh, persons to marry now that would really help the muslim community because a lot of the problems that arise and to which i i suspect the archbishop alludes is the fact that muslim communities will go off to one side they'll conduct a a a, a ceremony of marriage uh, but they will fail to engage in the registration considering that as unimportant now that again goes down to culture and not to tradition because every single muslim country in the world today has a registration process so for muslims to keep away from the registration process for me has more to do with culture has more to do with a sullen resistance than anything else but of course you can pull the carpet from under their feet by saying okay hang on let's combine the two and let us have the imam who conducts conducts the nikah ceremony let's have him as a licensed chap who can actually do your your civil ceremony as well so that's one major issue which i feel that that the muslim community needs to take very place very frankly on the table and establishment needs to respond positively to that the second issue that i find uh, hugely problematic and that is um the the notions of divorce whether quote unquote it is a muslim divorce or a secular divorce now for me personally my argument would be that marriage in islam is a contract and not a sacrament as opposed to christian weddings as opposed to other religious denominations in islam i feel that because it is a, is a civil contract it it can be made or unmade in a civil fashion quote unquote and therefore for a muslim woman or a muslim man and woman to go to court in britain and seek dissolution of the marriage after uh, due proceedings i do not feel that that is un-islamic at all we have a very strong legal opinion from the european uh, uh, fatwa council uh, and and they very clearly articulated the fact that the judge uh, who is the qadi who is the arbiter in this case has every uh, authority to uh, dictate a dissolution to the parties to which they are legally morally ethically bound now that i think is the sticky point here and i think i suspect that's what the archbishop was referring to because in order to uh, get round this we've got more than more than 80 what they call muslim sharia councils so kind of informal um arbitration stroke informal court system where these women and men who already have got a divorce from the courts of this country they, they go and want to be doubly sure and they want the husband to pronounce the word talaq in front of witnesses and short of doing that they feel that their divorce is not valid is not islamically valid now whilst i know that people who initiated these muslim sharia councils in britain their heart was in the right place they were trying to do these muslim women a huge favor but i'm sorry after much thinking and i've given it about 5 years of thought my clear opinion on this is that this is not doing a service to the men and women 
in the Muslim community because we're being marginalized and a lot of women who are literate or semi-literal do not understand that what they seek from this uh, from this Sharia council is simply an informal piece of paper that will not stand up in a court of law in any Muslim jurisdiction. So to me, that's that again is an issue that we need to debate where informed Muslim scholarly research and opinion needs to inform the policy and Muslim communities need to accept and acknowledge and internalize these facts. And I suspect that the Archbishop was actually referring to this because it brings me to my final point of what I feel the Archbishop was talking about was this very um, ambivalent um, uh, ambivalent approach of the English courts when a Muslim marriage or divorce issue came before them. Now, up until now, Muslim, uh, when a Muslim marriage was at stake or where there were issues of custody or guardianship or mahar, which is the marriage gift with a, which a husband gives to, to the wife, when that was at stake, if you look right down from the 50s up until the present day, um, the English courts were saying, well, hang on, because a Muslim marriage is potentially polygamous, therefore we do not acknowledge it. Starting from that, it moved on to a position where, where the English court said, well, an English national cannot enter into a potentially polygamous marriage under the laws of England and Wales. Fair enough. So a contract of marriage conducted in a country such as Pakistan under the Muslim family laws ordinance of that country was considered a potentially polygamous marriage and to the extent that 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 the other party was able to seek an entry visa as a fiancé, to that extent, the immigration, uh, the Home Office and the courts was accepting it, that was fine. But the English national had to conduct another marriage in this country according to the laws of, of England and Wales. Now, when this went to court, the amount of money or property that was given by the husband to the wife under a Muslim contract of marriage called the Mahar, that was accorded a partial recognition by the English court saying, you know what, whilst we do not acknowledge that this is a marriage contract, we do acknowledge that it is a contract. And therefore, the mahar or marriage gift due to the wife, we will enforce it as a contractual obligation, but not as part of a marriage. Now this, I agree, I disagree. I think I like it and I think I don't. I accept it and yet I don't. I suspect that the Archbishop was actually putting his finger on this particular approach of the English courts. The English court system has been fairly flexible though over the years in terms of adapting and changing to religious sensibilities and certainly in terms of the lawmaking process. There's a lot of consideration given to religious sensibilities, Catholic you know, Catholic uh, uh, objections over issues around abortion, for example, um, yeah, yeah. the adoption of uh, Jewish regulations on business. Yeah. Um, and it's not that long ago that in the UK we had our own parallel system of church courts, of uh, civil courts, and we have to acknowledge that English law is... You know, it comes from a, a Christian tradition. So is, is Dr. Williams raising an issue here that he doesn't really need to? Is this something that 
is you know that law will adapt and change over time and as different uh, requirements come to the fore you know the system adapts to change adapts to adopt those you know here i feel that it is it is important for me to mention that the english legal system i doubt that it is likely in at least the foreseeable future um if we think of the line and length and thinking <laughs> of the legal system at the moment that it is likely to adapt or acknowledge the muslim contract of marriage for the simple reason that the underpinning of the institution of marriage has forever been as you rightly point the 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 the, the christian tradition of marriage being the union of one man and one woman to the exclusion of all others i mean hide and hide uh, 1870 is a classical example in that case where and that was true with a mormon case not a not a, a muslim case but nevertheless i suspect that what dr williams is actually pointing towards is saying uh, you know ought we to acknowledge that muslim marriages um, can be potentially polygamous now so far as i'm concerned and i know hundreds and thousands of muslim men and women are concerned and primarily muslim women are concerned we would be hugely worried were this the line of argument or this the line of thinking of dr williams because polygamy in islam by saying shall be you know accept sharia law are we saying allow polygamous marriages no thank you because polygamous marriages are not the norm in islam they are an exception stringent exception to the rule and a lot of countries uh, muslim countries in the world through their law reform from within the islamic tradition have actually strongly curtailed and inhibited and in one case even prohibited polygamy so my uh, so in response to your saying will this sort itself out and will 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 a time come when the english courts will say oh yes this is a contract of uh, a muslim contract of marriage we accept it i doubt that until and unless they were absolutely sure that this was a monogamous marriage within the understandings of our legal system in britain so that definitely is an issue which i feel that there's going to be uh, a problem um, about finally i feel that in a number of areas uh, muslim communities uh, have not actually articulated as much of uh of um, of a debate uh, or a demand um and and i wonder whether it is the patriarchal norms uh, that are informing this 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 very sort of you know laid back position and i'm referring here to the law of inheritance for instance why is it that uh, muslim communities have not articulated a demand for saying uh, uh, oh you know yeah we we want the muslim law of marriage acknowledged in in britain but we also want the muslim law of inheritance acknowledged i suspect because there they would have to give inheritance to their daughters now i find that very interesting because it's a very selective use of islam so when when they feel it is it is something which which is to their advantage you know we will articulate that but when it leads to social justice and redistribution of resources between men and women i feel that that has not been articulated so for my sake i would say in in response to dr williams oh yes good for you if we're going to open a debate on inheritance rights for women in islam and we're going to make sure that these are acknowledged a lot of what you've discussed so far has has been about 
understanding these the, the distinctions between Islamic law, Sharia law, the relationship between international interpretations of that with national uh, secular law systems. You're involved in running a course at the University of Warwick, uh, an introduction to Islamic law. Um, do you feel that there's a real need uh, for people entering the legal profession to get a real understanding um, of what Islamic law is and how it pertains to the work that they're going to be doing? Well, um, definitely. I mean, what's, uh, what's happened thus far in Warwick is... Um I mean, I find it absolutely fascinating the way a half module, which runs only in the autumn term to undergraduate students, has attracted as many as 50 students in a group. And on a Monday evening, when I deliver the lectures, I, I end up having at least a dozen more from engineering and computer sciences and biological sciences in the medical school sitting there and saying, oh, but we're also interested because, you know, we often get asked these questions. Can we sit in? Now, uh, I feel that understanding Islam and is the Islamic legal tradition, it, whether it's within a general framework of, of Islamic law, so I mean whether we're talking of jurisprudence, whether of, we're talking of application of norms, whether it's in Muslim jurisdictions or non-Muslim jurisdictions such as the UK, I feel there's a huge need for it. And I mean a couple of uh, um, instances and evidence will uh, tell you what I mean. I get on average at least... 10 requests every month from law firms within the UK. Can you please uh, uh, let us have an expert legal opinion? Uh, we've got clients, where they're struggling over custody and guardianship, they're struggling over marriage, they're struggling over divorce, they're struggling. Over, I mean, it's a range of issues they're struggling with. And of course, the fact that they're constantly coming to a couple of us in the UK means that there is a need, there is a felt need to train our own homegrown, quote-unquote, law graduates who can go out there um, into the legal world and advise on the basis of, of their of first-hand knowledge and information, which has come as part of their legal training. So, yes, at Warwick, we've been hugely successful. And, I mean, because of the uh, uh, lack of resources, um, we've only managed to run it as a, a one-term course. But every feedback form that I see from my students, they're demanding a, a whole course, an entire year of teaching of Islamic law. But the second thing that Warwick has done, because we do want to be at the cutting edge of, of any contemporary development and need of society, um, we're running an MA in Islam and contemporary societies, and I've actually advanced the undergraduate course to become a postgraduate course in Islamic law. And that is becoming hugely popular, and a lot of um, students are sitting on it. The third development that we've done at Warwick is that with the, with the support of uh, UKCLE, we've actually got a, we're developing a range of curricula in Islamic law. And we're developing resources such as bibliographies, such as glossaries of Arabic to English terms. Um, and we are placing them on the website. We're developing teaching learning manuals. And by the middle of June 2008, we'll actually have five such manuals up and running on the website um, and all of this is a response to, to the need, the felt need within the community. The final point I'd, uh, on needs that, that I'd make here is that Hefki um, is now running a project on Islamic studies, on the teaching and learning of Islamic studies in higher education institutions in the UK and um, we're very much engaging with them 
uh, in this area. So I do feel that whilst on the one hand, Dr. Rohn's remarks may have been misconstrued or, or the manner and expression in which they have been articulated um, is, is giving a, a, a whole lot of us a, a cause for concern. On the other hand, I feel that some of these issues do require information, uh, they require research, they require sharing, uh, and they require to be placed on the table and thought out and addressed in a logical fashion and not in a stereotyping uh, mm, 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 manner of, uh, you know, uh, oh, Muslims, gosh, Sharia equals cutting off of hands. Uh, you know, that's really not the debate. Th those, stereotype, the one, those stereotypes, I mean, the experience, I suppose, that we see in places like Saudi Arabia and Iran doesn't help the argument, does it? Uh, well, because, uh, I, I feel that, I mean, what's lacking here is to say that th that this uh, aspect of Islamic criminal justice, um, is this uncontested? It's hugely con con contested and uh, how and under what circumstances uh, can these uh, punishments be applied? Uh, and whether or not it is legitimately Islamic to apply them in, the, in contemporary uh, day and age. I feel that more than 90% of Muslims would disagree uh, for these. So, for example, Tariq Ramadan, uh, uh, a Muslim scholar, he called for the moratorium of the, uh, of the, on the death penalty. And he said that in a perfectly uh, Islamically argued fashion. So, when it comes to Islamic criminal justice, I would definitely not be on the back foot. I would definitely not go on the defensive and say, um, oh, you know, but, but we can defend these. No. I feel that the Islamic legal tradition, um, the Quran and Hadith, they are capable of addressing contemporary issues. And I feel that what we have not appreciated enough is the fact that translating a religious text and doctrine into a legally enforceable document can present a whole range of issues and problems. And I feel that the Islamic criminal justice is one such, such section. They all right as principles to inform uh, uh, social justice, but to completely translate them into legislative enactments without ensuring uh, the safety nets that come with it is, for me, it is completely un-Islamic.